Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I am joined today, as always, by senior tech reporter and edtech early stage fintech guru, Natasha Moscarinas. Natasha, is that enough job titles for you? <laughs> I'm like, do I cover edtech anymore? I guess I do. In some capacity, you'll see more stuff from me soon. But yeah, that'll do. Alex, how are you? I'm really good. I'm on this bagel kick. I've just been Ooh. eating a ton of bagels lately. Yes. And let me tell you, it's revolutionized my life. I've actually been in a better mood because of strawberry cream cheese and extra carbs. So yeah, hanging in there. I'm a rap girl these days, so I hear you. Oh, raps are good. I've gone to open face sandwiches just to kind of cut back on my carb intake and preserve more for candy. Oh, it's brutal. <laughs> Sorry about that intro, Marianne. How are you doing? Oh, no, no I'm, I'm good, but now you've made me hungry. So I'm probably gonna have a bagel after this show. Good. <laughs> Good. I really do think that the world could really help itself quite a lot by just having more donuts and, and bagels in general. Everyone would be fed and happy and wouldn't be so grumpy all the time. Twitter would be better, you know, less stressy. I think <laughs> oh, don't upgrade. talk about Twitter yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of Twitter, uh, while we are live here on Twitter spaces, at the end of this recording, we're going to go ahead and just hang out for a bit. So if anyone wants to harass us with questions, feel free to do so. Just tweet them at the main TechCrunch account and we'll collect them and answer them at the tail end of the show. And if you weren't here for the pre-show, quick rundown, we're talking about deals of the week from Hurdle, Posterity Health, and Continuum. We're going to talk about some layoffs, some changes that we're seeing in the market, then food delivery and executive turnover. And then we're going to wrap with what else but Twitter suing Elon Musk and all the chaos and carnage that has ensued. It has been a hilarious week. Unless you own Twitter stock, then it's not very funny. Uh, but if you don't, like we don't, it's been a real blast. But to kick things off, Marianne, there has been an acquisition in the world of Wordle clones, and I'm very excited about this. Yeah, so Spotify acquired a spinoff, a Wordle spinoff that's a music guessing game called Hurdle, which is cute. And Hurdle is not spelled with a U, but H-E-A-R-D-L-E. Clever. So anyway... Uh, this is really interesting. I haven't played it yet, but I plan to with my kids later today. Basically, what you do is you get to hear like a one second snippet of a song and try to, you have to try to guess what it is. And if you do guess, you win. If you don't, then you get to hear like two second snippet and then you get like six tries. And each time you get the length of the clip doubles. So you get, I guess what, six guesses. And by the end, you have 16 seconds to figure it yeah. out. So, Okay few things about the deal. Spotify didn't say how much they paid for it. But what is notable, it's the first time that Spotify has ever acquired a game. Like it's bought podcasts before, but never a game. Okay. So it's obviously trying to draw more people to its platform to discover music and songs and keep them there longer. So I think this is a really interesting acquisition on the part of Spotify. I'm totally here for it. I've played Hurdle and my only beef with the actual game itself is I feel like if I know the song or I've heard about it well enough to have known the name of it to guess it, then I don't need ever 12 seconds. I need either one second or I'm never going to get it in 16. Okay. That's interesting. Wordle, you can kind of work your way there by a lucky guess or, you know, kind of getting, you know, a system in place. But Hurdle seems harder to me. It's like bringing back, like playing trivia a little bit with yourself. I don't know. Like there's always like that fourth round. The stakes are high during trivia and then they start playing the music at the bar and you're just like, what? What is happening right now? And so I feel like at times, like they might sneak in the name of the song in that clip, but I always do wish for a little more. So I don't know. There's probably yeah. some sort of interest there. I will say I like the name, but it, I also... 
laughed at it a little bit because it does still sound like hurdle, like a challenge. It's like, right. Okay. Right. I, guess, I guess that branding was like kind of maybe a double meaning because they want us to be pushing ourselves to recognize yeah. music. To challenge ourselves. I mean, it's not, obviously the site's not quite as popular as Wordle. You know, it's still described like by our, our writer here as a strategic get for Spotify. Last month, it had 41 million visitors peaked in March with 69 million visits. So it's, it may not be Wordle, but it's certainly, you know. Huge. Yeah, it's certainly getting a lot of attention, getting a lot of visits. And honestly, I'll tell you, though, I had not ever heard of it until this week. Same. Oh, well, that's too bad. You didn't get into the whole Wordle clone wars after uh, Wordle took <laughs> oh, off. There were so, so many. Not so much. The worst one is the math Wordle. Uh, if you like the oh, math Wordle, I have beef with you because you have to arrange the numbers in a certain, it's just like, it's not fun. <laughs> I don't want yeah. to do you a know? math Wordle, please. That sounds like hell. <laughs> it's like the yeah. worst thing to control. No. What if Sudoku and Wordle had a baby? Well, I don't want to say <laughs> no, that. No, thank you. What I will say, though, about this deal in a more serious sense is that to me, this just goes to show Spotify is desperate to find a way to differentiate its overall subscription service from the commodified music world. And what Spotify really needs is pricing leverage and doesn't really have that because Apple can afford to sell Apple Music at a lower price point because it's not their core business. And Spotify is stuck with Music being its core business, hence the podcast push, hence the acquisitions. I don't think Hurdle changes the game, but if you're Spotify and you have a bunch of money, a bunch of stock, why not throw, I'm going to guess here, a few million dollars at an application to try to build out your platform? I mean, listen, it worked for the New York Times. They saw their best ever quarter for net subscriber additions after they acquired Wordle in January. So I think you're spot on, Alex. I mean, as a journalist, that makes me really sad. <laughs> but also, for their games. my spouse and I- <laughs> Spotify yeah, on- Terrible pun I just made, or whatever you want to call oh, it. Sp- spot on. <gasps> yeah. Spotify. I, I know, I know. Yeah. it's terrible. Oh, I, I mean, you know. If, if you're into ticker symbols, Marianne really <laughs> nailed the joke because Spotify's Ooh. ticker symbol is spot. No, I, I think it's really fun. I'm just amazed that it's still doing 41 million hits a month. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of attention. Yeah. So, okay, let's move on and talk about Posterity Health. Now, this is a company that has just raised seed funding and the company is very interesting because it deals with infertility, but not from the perspective that we usually see. So when we talk about infertility, especially here in the US, we tend to talk about women's health. And as it turns out, you need two different factors to create a child and the other half of the equation does really matter. Historically in our culture, or really just kind of human culture, we've blamed women for infertility, kind of just whole stop. And a lot of folks are just not aware that men have similar sort of like degrading fertility over time, and that they can be a really big factor in a couple's inability to conceive. So what Posterity Health is doing after raising a $6 million seed round led by Distributed Ventures is providing kind of a suite of services to men to learn more about their fertility, to double check other test results, to reverse vasectomies and so forth. And I thought this was going to be something that was tied to like corporate benefits, but actually Mm. it seems to be more of a fee for service model, which surprised me. So that's my kind of first read. I think it's smart, but I'm curious when you guys read this first impressions. I'd say, first of all, I was surprised that supposedly in more than 50% of infertility cases, a male fertility factor is involved. That number's quite a bit higher than I would have thought. And if it is accurate, then certainly I could see where there'd be demand for what posterity is doing. I do think there's unfortunately a lot of, I don't want to say taboos the word, but a lot of people who are experiencing infertility don't always like to talk about it, even though there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just not something that's super accepted culturally to just talk about, right? So I welcome any startup that's out to help people in these situations. It's a very stressful and difficult time for families or couples who are trying to conceive. So I am curious to see, you know, how posterity 
how it turns out in the long run. Like if it is successful, if, if it is able to help people, you know, it's too early to tell, but I do like what it's trying to do. Yeah. I mean, going to what you're saying where it's like, there's the stigma, there's a lot of hurdles that are going to stop people from seeking this type of support in the first place, even though we've known this fact for a long time, purely like what you said, Alex, it takes two people to make a baby. So yes, there's going to maybe not only thinking about one of the partners sounds pretty obvious, but it's still taken us so long. I did like that posterity's differentiators in their view are the education and engagement portion that's incorporated into its digital platform that kind of adds on top of its at-home diagnostics. I think that it's already so hard to turn inward. And so a startup that is going to go the extra mile and be a little bit more of a handholder with something like this feels great. And I think especially with like this promise of personalized healthcare, often it's all about ease and access. But the engagement side to me is like this whole other thing that's not talked about too often. Yeah. On the education part, it's really interesting. Having just gone through the ye old fun infertility cycle, I learned so much stuff that I didn't know. I think when we think about infertility, we think about like egg quality and like sperm number, but there's really just kind of, there's a lot more going on. There's um, sperm motility. And then there's also how, what portion of those are actually seeing progressive motility, i.e. moving forward versus going in a little circle. Turns out if your sperm is going in a circle, they don't go anywhere. Not so good. And then there's also morphology or kind of shape. And so there's a lot that goes into this. I, I got to learn all this going through a, a bunch of testing and it's not fun, but it is very important to understand if you're not conceiving the way you'd like to. So I think it's a cool company, $6 million distributed ventures and one to keep an eye on as it were. Now, Let's take a hard pivot away from things we think are kind of cool to companies that are dealing with things that are less cool. And Natasha, Continuum is dealing with the, the nasty side of the downturn, if you will. Totally. So it's built by the former head of people at Carta, which I think is really interesting. Mm. His name is Nolan Church, and he is the founder and CEO of Continuum. And this week they launched a way to help startups conduct their tech layoffs and what they consider is a more humane way. So they're really connecting startups to part-time executive help and they're kind of offering these packages. So teams that are considering connecting a layoff will be connected to a part-time HR executive who will help craft a company's comm plan, diversity and impact analysis, which I think would be really interesting to dig into, aka don't accidentally fire all of your diverse talent, or at least don't pretend like you didn't notice. And then the day of support in conducting the layoffs. So I really thought this was interesting because a lot of early stage startups definitely do not have robust ways. And Marianne, as your better.com reporting has shown, even the ones that are well capitalized don't really have the best HR systems in place when conducting such massive layoffs. Yeah. I mean, I did find all of this really fascinating. And I think, unfortunately, there are so many layoffs happening. And certainly a lot of companies are probably scrambling, trying to figure out how to handle, how to deal with it internally, externally. So I would imagine demand you know, might be high. I do wonder though, what do they mean by part-time executives? I think I read that they're trying to match up companies, HR teams with executives who've been through a similar experience or something like that. So can you help explain that, Natasha? Yeah, yeah. So basically the pitch is like a lot of startups, like I said, in the early stage do not have either the budget or, you know, probably while we're trying to be in a leaner environment, shouldn't be hiring a CFO day one. And so Continuum was really betting on like this idea of fractional work where someone would come in for maybe 15 hours a week, be a contractor, but definitely have like a lot of power within the company to make a difference. On the layoffs mm -hmm. front, especially, I think of their closest competitor as consultants. But in this case, there'd be more seasoned executives that had already gone through rounds of layoffs themselves that would come in and help for a period of time at the company. Does that help a little bit? Yeah. It's very similar to consultants, just bucketed differently. And part of this vision right. where they think the future is more having contractual work at companies versus full-time employees. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I thought this company was cool because anything we can do to make layoffs more humane and take better care of people, I'm in favor of. I have been laid off before and it's about as much fun as being slapped in the face with a large trout. Oof. So anything we can do to improve that, let's do it. But again, it seems like a fee for service model, Natasha. Like I think they charge $10,000 if you have up to 100 employees and then I think 20K for up to 250. It's not the kind of recurring revenue model that we tend to see from startups. And so I was a little surprised to see how they're going about this because if layoffs slow, won't their business kind of inherently decelerate? Yeah, I mean, like Nolan would not you know, ever say this, but I view it very much as like, this is their, this is one of their services. And I view the layoff product as kind of like this marketing or I wish I had like my SaaS hat on more, Mm -hmm. but like this kind of top of funnel into the continuum product where it's like a lot of people are going to care about them now because everyone's Mm -hmm. thinking about layoffs. It's a great Mm -hmm. way to kind of meet your customers where they're at today. Once they kind of get familiar with this idea of people coming in once in a while to support for, you know, as, as long or as short as they want, I could see continuum then using those same people and being like, okay, maybe you need help now with compensation strategy or with talking about different ways to like, I don't know, help motivation on the team. So I think Continuum's core product would be much more this marketplace model where they're connecting these executives to the startup for longer periods of time, not just kind of such a niche use case. Got it. Okay. So they're like, they help companies generally, but now they're trying to just offer this particular service in addition to what they were already doing and then hope that when layoffs kind of die down, that those people might still use their other services. That's how I made sense of it, at least. Alex, okay. it seems like okay. you have a different take, though. No, I have I have a curiosity. Okay, okay. Because at first, I, I was a little confused by the Carta lineage of this company. Like, mm. why, why did Nolan leave to do this? And then I'm just thinking about what Carta does. It's a combination of software and services, right? They have a strong human component. They will help you with your startup-y stuff. And then listening to what Continuum is building... Wouldn't this nest really neatly inside of a broader Carta product? Mm. And if that's the case, mm-hmm. has Nolan left and then gone and started a company that he can sell back to his employer <laughs> and therefore get paid roughly 10 times as much for doing a work he might have done as an employee at his original firm? Um, I definitely think of it that so, way, br- Alex. Brilliant. But I mean, that's a great idea. I do think like Carta has like maybe in a smart way not bet itself too much on like human capital, while this company is definitely basing itself on like this, on executives wanting to work on behalf of Continuum in a way. So that to me is the only headache, but I could totally see at least ideology wise, it very much meshing. Yeah. Can I just say one more thing before we move on to Hopin? But like, can you imagine a worse job than being a part-time executive who's brought in as a hired gun to fire people? I was just thinking the same thing. I'm like, where are they finding these executives? (laughs) Hi. Do you want to come in and you clean up all the tr- all the mess? <laughs> like, job no, sounds I don't. Totally. It's a good point. It's a real point because a lot of the, like in the past 15 years or so, we've only been in this bull market. And so a part of me is like, it's probably really hard to find executives who have experience conducting layoffs that also, it's like that overlap seems hard, which right. makes it more yeah. important to have help, but also harder to find it in the first place. So this is why the story was yeah. interesting, clearly. <laughs> If you're going to hire me to come in and fire all of your staff, I want more than 10K to lay off between 20 and 100 employees. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, I I wouldn't do that for, well, I mean, pick a number, but like 10K seems light, (laughs) given that that's not all flowing to the part-time executive in question. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, but speaking of layoffs, we have seen another couple rounds of layoffs in the last couple of days. And the one that has stood out to all of us, I think, has been hopping because, Natasha, they had done this recently. And so I was surprised to see them kind of back with the scissors in hand to trimming away. Oh my God. Yeah. Just four months ago, Hopin laid off around 12% of their workforce. Then they were like, we need to focus on sustainable growth in the changing market. You know, today, this week, they cut nearly a third of their staff, including their COO, CFO, chief business officer, and head of sales. 
Wow. So it's it's pretty wow. insane to see them kind of double dip into the layoffs bucket and again kind of have that same tone where they're needing to be, I think now we got a little bit of a different wording choice, which is they want to be more self-sustained in a way. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that is just kind of their version of saying that they need to not rely too much on venture capital. And they did say that they already kind of did a hiring freeze reduction in marketing spend. So this was somewhat of a last resort. I mean, mm-hmm. stunning to see it yeah. happen. I mean, you know, like I understand that Hopin had its, what do they call it, day in the sun during the pandemic. And it was like all the rage because everybody was virtual. But like, surely they had to have foreseen that things might slow down as the pandemic wore on. And it, a stunning is a good word. I mean, they've raised about a billion dollars in venture capital from investors like Tiger, Andreessen, General Catalyst, a, a lot of big name VCs. Last revalued at $7.75 billion. So two rounds of layoffs that are fairly significant in such a short amount of time is just not great. Yeah. I'm really curious about their numbers, about their economics, because, you know, when they bought all those companies, I talk to the company quite frequently. So I've actually had a reasonable amount of chatting time with Johnny, the uh, founder and CEO of, of Hopin. And when they bought StreamYard, they were buying like a bucket of like $30 million worth of ARR. So they were buying companies that weren't just like vanity purchases. They were buying stuff to either plug into their system or to bring on extra capability. And so I'm really curious to see in the next six or 12 months, how does the revenue mix end up and how important is their core events business as we understand it? And does the initial thesis of the company, which is that hybrid events are the future, and then the pandemic hit and they became the remote event business. We're like, does the hybrid thesis hold up long-term or are they more a collection of technologies that don't actually accrete to a platform? There's a lot of money resting on this or Mm -hmm. kind of betting on it, but I don't know exactly what the main thrust of Hopin is today, if that makes sense. A spokesperson really pushed over email two things. One was that they have a lot of runway left. And I'm guessing that's obviously partially in result to these two layoffs. And two was like this really big focus on Hopin, as like you said, Alex, a suite of services supporting, yes, virtual events, but they also said in-person events and kind of pointed towards StreamYard, one of their acquisitions, oh. <laughs> as an example of one of their successful products. And so I think it's like a huge time for their acquisitions to see if they're panning out. And I mean, the weird part is, is like they can't really, it's probably hard to like hide that anymore. They've had two layoffs. They've had five acquisitions. There's a lot of people invested literally in this company and then also figuratively mindshare wise. So I, I feel like it's like, this is definitely not the end <laughs> based on my DMs. Well, I, I just want to point out that I was not on that email chain. And so I was not parroting the yeah. hop in PR on purpose. That was an accident. <laughs> but I, I do think when they talk about self-sustainability, my mind immediately goes to where are the revenue buckets that they can stand on? And StreamYard was, I think, the biggest company in revenue terms that they bought. So that made pretty good sense. I don't know. They're a big company. Getting to sustainability, it feels very 2022. I don't know if the layoffs... I mean, look, you want to do all your layoffs at once. If you have to do two cuts, you made a mistake the first time around. Yeah. So that's that's poor management. Marianne, do you have anything more here before we talk about Ev? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree. I just feel like... And I've been seeing it happen with a lot of startups, though, where there's been more than one round of layoffs this year already. And I just feel like it speaks to poor planning, to be honest with you, on the part of management and executives. It's just, I know it's not easy, but I think I'm just seeing so much of it that it's just startling. Also, I'm not so sure what StreamYard did, by the way, or does. So I don't- StreamYard does. Okay. I'm going to reach into the memory bucket here. And if this is wrong, send your emails to um, 
uh, matthew.panzerino.techcrunch.com. <laughs> so StreamYard is technology that helps people bring videos into Hopin. And I think the way the acquisition worked out, if memory serves, is that Hopin had noticed that a lot of their customers were using StreamYard to get video into Hopin. And so why not bring that business in-house? And I think that the pitch was they were going to keep the connectors open. So okay. if you didn't want to use StreamYard, you could. But here would be a first-party in-house solution that mm. was already proving popular. So why not just kind of, you know, accrete that into the business? Oh, okay. Thank you. Well, listen, Hoppin CEO is still there, but that's not the case for all chief executives. This week, we saw an insane step down from Medium. Alex, tell us what happened. Well, Ev Williams has stepped down as CEO of Medium, but I didn't think it was insane at all. So oh. Natasha, I want to push back on your framing and tell me why it was so shocking to you. I mean, he's he's one of those people that feels like so, I guess, ingrained with what Medium is. I don't think Medium was doing well necessarily based on the past year and a lot of the stories that we've written and other people have written. But I guess it's kind of just always a big deal when I think a high profile CEO steps down. Medium hasn't had layoffs in the way that are kind of too public of a financial thing where I'm like, it doesn't seem like we were pressured. It was probably a choice. Yeah. I've had layoffs in the past though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wrote that story a while ago about them really struggling. I think he's definitely not been a non-controversial figure. (laughs) Um, I do think this is interesting for a few different reasons. I mean, first of all, I did not realize he's also a co-founder of Twitter. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that was kind of where he got the credibility, I feel, to launch Medium. And also, I think the money. Yeah. Well, to that point, though, there's a media technology consultant that Connie quoted in the piece that pretty much says that Medium probably would not even be as successful as it has been if not for the fact it was founded by Ev Williams, giving him a lot of credit yeah, for what success it has had. So the fact that he is his stepping down is very significant and probably, yes, his choice. So it does, you know, it's already had its struggles. So now I feel like this isn't like the best news, obviously, for Medium. No, not at all. But the thing about Medium that I'm just in awe of is how big of a subscriber base it's managed to generate despite having had more pivots than a ice dancer. <laughs> I mean, the company, does that actually, do ice dancers pivot? Oh I was my God, that was a yeah. good one, Al. They do. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, it was either that or it was the, uh, the discus people. Sorry, we don't plan out our jokes before we start. We just talk and then sometimes they don't go well. Medium has accreted hundreds of thousands of subscribers that pay it five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year. And they, have done this despite having so many pivots. And that is such a success. The company does have, it seems, a relatively robust revenue base that a lot of media platform businesses have failed to get to. And so it's a failure and also not. It just never found the right mix of of what it... It never figured out what it was, I think, as an mm-hmm. issue. Publisher, platform, plastisher. We've had this yeah. debate yeah. in the world of media forever. But I, I do think that it does feel slightly dated now as a service and as a push. And therefore, to see Ev step back, not the world's biggest surprise from my view. Natasha, going back to your intro to the segment and why when I saw this, it felt more like, a, ah, okay, versus a, ah, shock. I think sometimes when I see someone step down, I think that, okay, there's a new chapter about to start for a company. And in this case, I feel differently and I don't have the right words for it, but it feels like, okay, I'm not going to tune into Medium as much as a result. Mm. Is that too harsh? I mean, when's the last time you tuned into Medium? I, I read Medium today because Hunter Walk uses it as his uh, blogging platform, mm-hmm. but that's really bad. So it. is London Breed. Huh. Yeah. I'm London like, Breed, the mayor of San Francisco? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to see what's next, right? I mean- <laughs> Yeah. Who's going to take over from here? 
Well, speaking of executive changes, we're going to talk about some news really quick, which is that Instacart has shaken up its executive structure. I tried to not cover personnel news, generally speaking, apart mm-hmm. from like people like Ev leaving a company like Medium, just because there's so many folks in the world of technology that I don't think individual actors are the things that we should be focused on more on trends. But anyways, Instacart does matter quite a lot to us because they have filed privately to go public. They are one of the most richly funded startups out there, kind of a category defining company, if you will. And they have promoted... A lot of people. So they have a CTO now. They swapped out CTOs. They promoted some people to be, I think, chief business officer and chief product officer and chief marketing officer. And most importantly, they've unified their ads business and their grocery business under the same person. And I think that's a key thing. So I think it goes to show how important advertising is for Instacart, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, to kind of bring it up to parity with the grocery setup's business. Can you help me understand that? Like, I never would have expected a grocery business and an ads business being under like one umbrella. Yeah. So, Marianne, why is Google such a money driving machine? It's because when I search for uh, DUI legal help, I'm a high intent person, right? I'm searching for that because I was pulled over by the cops with a bottle of vodka in my cup holder and I need help now. In the same sense, if you're on Instacart's app and you search for a Pepsi six pack, you're not actually looking for a broccoli souffle. You're looking for Pepsi. And so if you're a CPG or consumer packaged goods company and you want to get your soda in front of eyes of people who really want to buy it, you can go put money on television and show me Doritos ads or whatever, or you can advertise in these applications at the points of search. Mm -hmm. And so essentially Mm -hmm. the same factors that make search in general so profitable and lucrative is the same reason why Amazon's ad business is huge. It's why Microsoft hasn't gotten rid of advertising yet. And it's also why Instacart's ad business could be a higher margin business than its actual delivery service. Wow. I will say Instacart is kind of, it, it's not giving up. Like it is continuing to make pivots and react to tensions in the business, despite being this company that very much like fit that pandemic narrative of like, oh my gosh, like high growth, lots of money raises. I feel like around a year ago, actually this month, we saw Apoorva Mehta, who was the founder and CEO, step down and be replaced by Fiji Simo as its new CEO. And now we're seeing a ton of other executives like you explained, Alex. And so I feel like I'm really interested. I mean, I am really interested in the idea of Instacart's kind of rebirth story. I feel like it's a future story waiting to be written for one. Um, and, and also just the fact that it's privately filed for an IPO means like we kind of have this like perfect arc happening for us. I'm so excited. Yeah, I would have to just quickly say I kind of agree with you, Natasha, in that Instacart has had its fair share of I guess, stumbles or troubles over the past year, year and a half or so. But for some reason, it still manages not to be like viewed in this super negative light. So it's doing something right in that regard. I don't know exactly what it is, but like there, it doesn't feel like a doom and gloom situation to me either. I'll tell you why I think you're both right, which is that when Instacart had its pandemic boom, it went from luxury to necessity when people could leave their house, right? And so it rode that wave well. It capitalized on it by adding a lot of money to its table. Good, 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 whatever. But then it didn't shrink afterwards. And so Instacart didn't grow as much last year as we might have seen in 2020, but it didn't retreat. And to me, that was kind of a win. Like yeah. I, I thought DoorDash and Instacart and a lot of these other businesses would see a growth boom and then a, not just a deceleration in growth, but an actual you know negative progress. Right. And it didn't, didn't happen based on the data that I can see. So to me, that's why it's avoided the doom and gloom because it's still growing slower, but still. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. Let's talk about childbiotics. So <laughs> Natasha, as the resident vegetarian here, you consume, <laughs> I presume, more 
What? Oh, no, no, sorry. True? I'm just preparing to talk about this. That's why. I am oh, very proud sorry, to be I, a resident vegetarian. Don't get me wrong. I, I was going to say, I didn't know that was a diss. I thought that was a point of pride. Okay, so trying that again. Natasha, as a vegetarian, who's also on the show and is the only one of the hosts who currently does not eat meat, I thought you might have an interesting take on this because DoorDash bought Showbiotics and they were this salad robot company, which I thought was pretty cool because salad is just stuff in a bowl that you mix around. So right. why not have a robot do it? And they're shutting it down. Oh my and God. I'm kind of disappointed by that. Well, before we get into like the actual salad side of this equation, which I love that we are going to be. The weirdness of this story, um, obviously people losing their job and a company shutting down sucks, but the weirdness is very much that me and Alex, when we were on a separate podcast together for the SF Chronicle, I think it was called Startups of the Week, Chowbotics was just the startup that we had on the show that I just cannot forget that we had on the show. Oh, wow. So whenever I see it, I'm always like, start of the week podcast. <laughs> and so I did talk, I oh think I God. talked to the founder of Chowbotics. He was really like optimistic at this idea of like robot stations at grocery stores, at, at convenience stores. So like this vision of like at a 7-Eleven, you don't have to just get packaged processed goods. And so I just remember that like yesterday. And it's so weird to be on a separate podcast with you now at the end of this company's life, unfortunately, <laughs> talking about it all over again. But I couldn't let go of that history but Button. And if Owen Thomas is listening right now, that is me pressing the Owen Thomas history button. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, a few thoughts here. I have to wonder if Chowbiotic, Chow, is it Chowbiotics? Chowbiotics. 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 It's Chowbiotics. I mispronounced it. Oh, sorry. sorry no. Chowbiotics. Uh, Biotics. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> lots of fun ways to say this name. I wonder if it would be in this situation if it had not been acquired by DoorDash. Like, would it still be around? I, I'm curious, like, about that. Alex shaking no. his head here. No. I mean, here's the thing. Like, you know how I feel about robot stuff in general. So I'm not opposed to this concept, but I can understand sort of why it didn't take off, especially when it comes to salads. I'll tell you, two decades ago, I caught an amoeba from like unwashed lettuce in a salad, I would be scared as hell to eat a salad that was made by a robot. Personally, that's just me. On another note, you know, I'm not sure what DoorDash's reasons were behind this, but it was only 17 months after it acquired the company that it decided to shut it down. I have a guess about that. So 17 months ago, DoorDash was worth what, four times what it's worth now? And I think when you have that kind of capital sloshing through your business, you just get a little relaxed. Everything looks kind of cool. It's like if you, it's like when you were a child and you had 20 bucks in your pocket, the world's your oyster, you know? And if you all of a sudden you had $5, the world's not your oyster. And that's been the, the <laughs> stock market in the last couple of years. Seriously. So I think this was a thing they just didn't want to invest in. I feel yeah. like it never made sense for them too, if I can say that now, because DoorDash is not in the business of like food quality assurance right. in that way, or it doesn't produce food. Right. It doesn't have ghost kitchens. I'm just, I'm very confused by it. Maybe we should have pushed yeah. more originally, but I'm just like, wait, yeah, it makes entire sense for you not to. And it may not even be like, they can't afford to keep it running. It just may not make sense. Like you said, Alex. Yeah. It, I mean, the valuation has so dramatically fallen. <laughs> it doesn't fit in with what they do, right? Like it just seems too out of their normal stuff. Well, there's two ways to go about this sort of platform business. There's the Lyft approach and the Uber approach. Lyft has stayed very close to its initial focus of helping people get around. You get into a car, you go someplace, Lyft. Uber has done much more. They have really expanded their product mix, their geographic footprints and so forth. And maybe this is DoorDash saying that they're going to be a bit more the Lyft for food delivery versus the Uber uh, for everything. Well, and so making salads isn't... I guess, but Uber Eats sucks. So I, I mean, that hasn't <laughs> bode well for that company in my opinion. So you don't want to get me started on food delivery. Okay, I, part of the reason I wanted to do this segment is how irritated I am by food delivery and takeout. And so I have to do a small, quick vent. Please, please, please. 
days. Almost every single takeout order or delivery order we've made over the past few months has had significant mistakes or errors in terms of either with what we got or how it was presented. And the most frustrating thing is they'll tell you, oh, it'll be delivered in 36 minutes, which turns into one hour and turns into 96 minutes, which turns into two hours almost every time. So like... It's not even fun or worth it anymore to order food delivered. And then there are fees. Don't get me started on that. Do you live on Mars? Uh, Kind of. I thought you lived in Austin. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But Northwest Austin. So sort of Mars. I mean, I was going to say partially it's like labor shortages restaurant wise, whatever. That's like a separate thing. The fees and the timing is particularly frustrating. I will say in SF, it's not that bad for me. But I'm also like probably the worst person to, I do takeout like once a month or delivery once a what? month because I live near so much takeout. So I just walk to it. Oh, okay. Just city okay. things. Yeah. All right. I mean, you raise a good point, Alex. Maybe it's because Austin's population has grown too much and our infrastructure in every shape, way or form has not kept up. So perhaps we're seeing longer wait times here and more f- ups, I don't know, than other parts of the country. Ooh, but, spicy language. Yeah, sorry. But I, I'm just really turned off. So I, I'm sorry. I digressed, but I just had to get that vent <laughs> in. No, no. I'm, I'm going to, wow, put on my corporate hat and defend food delivery because <laughs> let me tell you, food delivery has kept me alive for the last like 10 years. <laughs> and Uber Eats was great in San Francisco because unlike Natasha, when I was in SF, walking was not really part of my thing. So I didn't do it. I just stayed in my apartment, which is where I belonged. And here in Providence, where I live now, Uber Eats is amazing. Oh my God. Because so they will bring here. Popeyes to my house quickly. Oh no. It is not like, like that it, where I am at all. So, Marianne, have you considered leaving yes. Texas, where it's yeah. a thousand billion well, degrees, and moving to a place where it's perhaps half a thousand degrees? And then you could also get Uber Eats. Twofer. <laughs> Ooh. Yes. So, sorry, guys. Sorry. I digress. <laughs> Couldn't help it. Anyways, Chowbotics is a robotics company, which is a good way to remind everybody that TechCrunch is having a robotics event on July 21st. It's free. It's online. Come hang out. The robotics team, Brian Heater in particular, do great work. We have a special episode of Equity coming out on Saturday, chatting with me and Brian, talking about all things robots. I'm a robotics fan more than an expert, and so my questions were more from the heart than the head, so I hope <laughs> that episode comes out well. But that'll be out on Saturday, and uh, yeah, the event's online and free. So next week, the day before my birthday, come hang out with us and talk about robots. It'll be a good time. Yes, I did a panel. It was really fun. Very spicy, actually. We talked about layoffs. <laughs> we talked about chatbotics. We talked about Amazon's $1 billion fund. And I similarly am more of a generalist when it comes to robotics. So if you're even a beginner or someone who's just interested in the space, I think it'll be a great event for you. Yeah, but, and it's free, right? I think it's free to register. Yes, free to register. Which is amazing. Virtual, all the things. Yeah, It's virtual. I don't know if it's on Hoppin. That would be a great full circle (laughs) moment for the show if it was. Let's wrap. We have one more thing to do before we go. And I want to keep it brief. Now, we could go on for six weeks on the Twitter, Elon Musk, fracas, perhaps? Goat rodeo? I don't know what you want to call it. It's not great. And this week, we reached a new chapter in this particular book in which Twitter has now sued Elon Musk to make him buy it. And there's some some logic behind this. But before we get into the nuance, Natasha, when the lawsuit dropped, one, did you find it surprising? And then two, what was your, your take about Twitter's overall argument? Much like all the news these days and all of its variety of shades, I feel like I'm pretty numb to anything happening right now. And so when the lawsuit dropped, I wasn't surprised, Alex. I was very much curious on what exactly we'd see Elon tweet next, because I do think he consistently has a, and I'm part of the problem there for sure. But I was just like, okay, like what possibly are we going to see now? Of course, we did see some tweets right now, but Twitter's argument was basically that Elon Musk changed his mind when the market began its downturn. So in the lawsuit, lawyers basically say that like Musk 
raised this call to defeat all the spam bots and showed a lot of interest, obviously offered to buy Twitter. The market declined and that became a lot less attractive. He shifted everything and then demanded that verification that spam was not a serious problem on Twitter's platform and claimed a burning need to conduct, quote, diligence that he had expressly forsworn, a word that we don't um, use quite often enough, honestly. And so (laughs) I don't know if I can pick a side necessarily, but I am. It's very clear, obviously, that Musk is trying to backpedal his way out of the deal and that Twitter is ready with receipts, as Amanda Silberling showed us, as for why it's not okay. All right. We're not here to pick sides, but I will say I read the Twitter lawsuit. I don't know how you anyone would choose to do business with Elon Musk because he rolled into Twitter, bought a bunch of its stock, didn't produce the right filings, talked his way into a board seat, then dropped that, then forced a kind of hostile takeover, made Twitter agree to this, and then immediately afterwards tried to back out of it after trashing the company all over Twitter. And he essentially just flipped his argument entirely. He said, I need to buy Twitter to take it private so that way we can get rid of spam. And then he said, I can't buy and take it private because of spam, which is some bullshit. Um, and it, it was infuriating to read. Yeah, I have to agree. Infuriating is a good word. I mean, we saw this coming. We knew he was trying to back out. So like him backing out is not a shock. Twitter, I've made this analogy before. It's kind of like, you know, being asked out on a date, being wooed by someone that you're not that interested in. You finally give in and that person just like, eh, you know, change my mind. You know, you're not my type. And it's just, it's very frustrating. And I don't blame Twitter for being livid. It's done a, a lot to the company to have to go through all this. And I think it's beyond a joke that Elon is getting away with it. It says a lot about the way business is conducted in this country and how much certain people of certain stature and wealth can get away with. And that really pisses me off. There are two legal systems in this country. There's one for the wealthy and then there's one for us. And if you can afford to buy access and time for a fleet of lawyers, you can essentially just tie things up in court forever until everyone wants to scream. If you're poor, you get a public defender and then you go to prison. And Elon is one of the richest people in the world. And so that means that the system that is set up to protect and defend the wealthy protects and defends the wealthy. And so I don't know where this is going. I don't know if Twitter is going to win, but I will just say in terms of how Elon behaved during this process, the way the communication seems to have played out, the way he was tweeting his way through it, it reminds me of like a, a truculent teenager rather than a titan of technology. Totally unprofessional. I mean, really, really unprofessional. I think as you both so beautifully put it, it's just like has evolved past this, even the memes of the memes, it has evolved past that to be like these really like important and frustrating statements on like the way the world works. And it's not lost on me that Twitter has also like internally, it has laid off a hundred employees within its talent acquisition team. It's about 30% of its department. You know, it's restructuring. I can't imagine motivation is the same it was when they were on their product spree. And so it's just this frustrating thing to see happening at, you know, selfishly one of my favorite platforms of all time. So I think the impact will be felt for a really long time, which is just hard to watch happen. And we'll continue talking about it on equity because it's news. But as you can tell by our voices, we're not particularly excited about these updates. Well, no, I, I just wish the state, it's like watching a, like, it's like watching a car crash and then doing live commentary as the car slowly smolders oh and burns. You're like, okay, it's still on fire. Mm, mm. Slightly less fire now than before. It's not, it's not really like riveting flame? television. New flame? Flame? Okay. Thank oh, you. Yeah. And the flame is gone. Uh, the flame is gone. Much like this show, we are way over time. So we're going to stop talking and wrap up here. Natasha, Marianne, as always, a real treat. And because this is a live show, there were more hands at the wheel than usual. So of course, Grace was an absolute help on the screen and getting this put together, but also to Julio and the rest of the audio visual team at our greater Yahoo. Thank you very much for helping us put this together. To everyone on Twitter spaces, you're the best. And now we're going to say goodbye and then take some questions. Bye. 